service. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rockerola. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. When I open that my name, I'm going to leave my native land For to leave my dear old girl behind Who walked and told me her heart was mine The stories about Hugh Grant are insane. He almost tanked his promising movie career when he was caught with a sex worker at his car on Sunset Strip. He was arrested for assaulting paparazzi outside of his house with a Tupperware container full of baked beans. He wore a wire to interview a tabloid reporter and wound up cracking open a shocking phone hacking case that implicated both the London police and the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Incidentally, Hugh Grant once played the Prime Minister, and he made great films. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Lester Wills performing I'm a Rover in 1938. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to a clip from Joel Schumacher's Batman Forever. And why would I play you that specific slice of bat nipple cheese could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on June 27, 1995. And that was the day that the LAPD dragged Hugh Grant and a Hollywood sex worker out of a car and placed them both under arrest for lewd conduct. On this episode, Sex on the Sunset Strip, Assault with Baked Beans, Catwoman in Bondage Cheese, and Hugh Grant. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, Season 7, Hollywoodland. On a warm June night, along Los Angeles' Sunset Strip, the working girls plied their trade. The mile-long stretch that had once been alive with the psychedelic sounds of the West Coast hippie movement was now prime real estate for sex workers. Anything you wanted, from high-end to rough trade, you could find it on the Strip. That kind of commerce brought attention from the LAPD vice squad. For the most part, cops were willing to look the other way. There weren't enough hours in the day to bust every girl who strutted along the strip. The cops only pounced if something out of the ordinary caught their attention. Which is why they noticed the white BMW parked illegally off the main drag. The brake lights flashed on and off, like somebody was trying to send a message in Morse code. Maybe it was a distress signal, 
More likely, it was some junkie having a seizure. They approached quietly and carefully. One thing about being a cop on the strip, you never knew who you'd be dealing with or what state they'd be in. When they shined their flashlights in the window, the driver turned towards them, caught off guard. A woman's head bobbed in the driver's lap. His foot was twitching on the brake pedal in rhythm. The woman noticed that the man was tensing up and not in a good way. She looked up into the cop's flashlight beam. The driver rolled down the window. He gave the cops the wide, sheepish grin that was set to make him a star. He looked familiar. Had they seen his face somewhere before? But the cops weren't big on rom-coms. They didn't know this guy from any other John they busted on the Sunset Strip. The movie was a piece of shit, and Hugh Grant knew it. He probably knew that while they were shooting, but he sure as hell knew when he had to sit down and watch it. The reason he felt compelled to sit down and watch it the week before its release was that he suspected it was a piece of shit. And now there was no denying. Nine months, Hugh Grant's first big Hollywood movie was a piece of shit. His co-stars Jeff Goldblum and Tom Arnold, they knew it too, but they didn't have quite the skin in the game that Grant did. Hugh Grant had racked up quality roles in England, but Hollywood hadn't paid attention until the breakout success of Four Weddings and a Funeral the year before. At the time, it was the highest grossing British film ever. It marked Grant as bankable. His stuttering, flustered fop shtick sold tickets. A bookish bad boy who wasn't really that bad. Grant, like many actors before him, was lured across the pond by the promise of bigger paychecks. Unfortunately, the first film he took on was written and directed by Chris Columbus. This was before Columbus took the world to wizarding school. In 1995, he was best known for launching Macaulay Culkin's career with Home Alone. Nine months seemed like the perfect showcase for Hugh Grant's charm. Columbus wanted him playing the same character he had played in Four Weddings, a roguish but safe charmer whom women would drag their boyfriends to the movie theater to see. But the movie was saccharine, all sweet with no fizz. Goldblum and Arnold tried to comfort him. It wasn't the end of the world. For Grant though, it might be. He wanted to hop on a plane, back to London, back to his gorgeous girlfriend, Elizabeth Hurley, the face of Estee Lauder makeup. She was coming next week for the premiere, the red carpet and paparazzi in the talk show junket, all in support of this movie that it turned out was a giant piece of shit. His girlfriend was an ocean away. His Hollywood career was dead on arrival. He was hanging out with Tom Arnold. There wasn't much for Hugh Grant to do but get shit-faced in the afternoon. There's a moment when having drinks turns into serious drinking, but you can only see it in the rear view. Hugh Grant stumbled out of an LA bar and onto the sidewalk wondering where the sun had gone. It was up there when he stepped into the bar. This was California, goddammit, there was supposed to be sunshine. He fumbled for his keys and got in his white BMW. He knew the way to his hotel, but the only thing waiting back there was the minibar and a night of feeling sorry for himself. He drove toward the fabled Sunset Strip. He trawled, slowly, looking at what was on offer. None of these women could hold a candle to Elizabeth Hurley. Who could? But she wasn't here, was she? He was alone with the memory of the horrible movie he just made. So Grant stopped at a red light. A woman walked up to his car. She was thin and pretty, in a red dress that bared her midriff. He rolled down the window, not necessarily intending to solicit sex, maybe just a conversation, to be polite. Weren't Brits supposed to be polite? The summer air carried a whiff of her perfume into the car. He didn't recognize it, 
It wasn't Estee Lauder, the only brand his girlfriend wore. It was sweeter somehow. The woman didn't recognize Hugh Grant, but he had a nice smile and that cute accent. She asked if he wanted company. Grant told her to get in. She said her name was Divine Brown, which, as far as the streets were concerned, it was. The afternoon's alcohol sloshed around inside Grant's brain. Divine Brown. A name like that felt like a sign, which is probably why she picked it. He told her it had always been his fantasy to fuck a girl like her. She said for $100 he could take her back to his hotel and make that a reality. Grant realized he'd blown through his cash at the bar. He only had 60 bucks on him. Divine Brown said they could find an ATM on the way to the hotel, but Grant couldn't wait. The booze, the perfume, this moment. He wanted whatever he could get from her right now. Divine Brown told Hugh Grant to pull over and she'd show him exactly what $60 would buy him. The cops might not have recognized Hugh Grant, but someone at the station did. His face grinned at passerbys from posters and billboards for nine months' his upcoming release. Someone slipped the right cop the right amount of money to get a copy of Hugh Grant's mugshot along with Divine Brown's, and they were both charged with lewd conduct. The problem wasn't just that the blowjob had been for money, but that it happened in public, and Hugh Grant's whole life was about to become very public. British tabloids kept the phones at the Los Angeles police station ringing off the hook. The mugshots were ready to print, but they wanted more. They sent messengers armed with checkbooks, looking to get the story direct from the mouth of Divine Brown. A $60 blowjob was about to change her life. Divine Brown walked out of the Los Angeles police station that morning, not knowing who she engaged in lewd conduct with. All she knew was that she was facing both jail time and fines she could not afford to pay. The press mobbed her house. They wanted pictures of the 23-year-old, but more than that, they wanted an exclusive interview. Movie stars and prostitution sold papers. Days before, the client list of convicted Hollywood madam Heidi Fleiss leaked. Charlie Sheen was among the notable names, and his face ended up on front pages in connection to the prostitution ring. But catching Charlie Sheen paying for sex didn't make for a shocker headline. Hugh Grant, however, a supposed class act with his super hot girlfriend and throw in the fact that the UK celebrity scene was a fishbowl, Grant was poised to make it big in the colonies, but he was already huge at home. News of the World, a British tabloid, was ready to pay Divine Brown $100,000 for an interview, provided she didn't talk to anybody else. Oh, and the company that owned News of the World, the company also owned 20th Century Fox, the studio that was about to release Hugh Grant's Hollywood debut. But I'll get back to that. Divine Brown took the money. The rest of the reporters cleared off back to the police station where Hugh Grant was about to be released. All they got from Grant that morning was a prepared statement. Last night, I did something completely insane, it read. I have hurt people I love and embarrassed people I work with. For both things, I am more sorry than I could ever possibly say. No explanation, no excuses, it was simple, almost elegant. The accent helped. Or maybe it was that Hugh Grant looked like a guy capable of mischief, but not malice. People wanted to believe Hugh Grant. They wanted to forgive him. 
The planned press junket for nine months became the Hugh Grant apology tour. On talk shows and television interviews, he gave the same answer. I did a bad thing, a crazy thing. I'm sorry. It helped that the lurid details of that bad thing hadn't come to light. Divine Brown was enjoying what amounted to hush money. News of the World had the interview, and they sat on it. Nine months hit screens that Friday, July 12, 1995. Elizabeth Hurley flew in from London for the LA premiere, looking stunning in a white dress, but her face was set a scowl as paparazzi snapped pictures and shouted questions. Grant slumped his shoulders and flashed that charming grin. Elizabeth Hurley held onto his elbow. He couldn't be sure, but this actually might be a crash he could walk away from. Critics panned the movie, but audiences lined up to see the man who'd been in all the papers. Getting caught with a sex worker before his major film debut might have been a good thing. It was certainly a good thing for Divine Brown. After the film safely landed in theaters and earned back its budget, News of the World finally ran the exclusive interview. And there weren't a ton of details. The one she did share didn't make Hugh Grant look like a proper English gentleman. Once the exclusivity arrangement with News of the World expired, Divine Brown was free to tell her story to whoever she wanted. She went on The Danny Bonaducci Show and The Joey Buttafuoco Show. Those are actual shows, by the way, hosted by actual people with those actual names on actual TV. She talked to Howard Stern, too. And she did a shoot for Penthouse in a semi-documentary porn movie that restaged the incident and the arrest called Sunset and Divine, The British Experience. She made enough money to give up sex work, buy herself a house, and start a new life. All told, Divine Brown cleared about a million dollars off of that botched $60 blowjob. Good for her. Not so good for Hugh Grant. In addition to the sordid details of the incident plastered all over the tabloids, the press finally got around to talking to Elizabeth Hurley. Grant's girlfriend said she felt like she'd been shot when she heard the news. The couple was still together, but with Hurley's side of things in the mix, people asked themselves, why were they feeling sorry for him when they should actually be feeling sorry for her? Grant's career hung in the balance. With a moderate hit and the sex scandal on his resume, no one would have been too surprised if audiences filed Hugh Grant under D for dirtbag, right next to Charlie Sheen, who was right about then trying to explain under oath about the tens of thousands of dollars in checks he'd written to Heidi Fleiss's high-end sex workers. That was the state of play as Hugh Grant got ready for the biggest interview of his apology tour, his appearance on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. It was supposed to be about the movie, but there was no way they'd talk about that fucking movie. In the green room beforehand, Grant called a reporter who profiled him days before his life went off the rails. And they hit it off, as much as people did in canned promotional interviews. And the reporter asked how Grant was doing. I almost feel as if I deserve a good whipping, Grant said. It had the feel of a well-written line, well-delivered. That's because it was a rehearsal. Grant used the same words on The Tonight Show. Leno's first question for him was, what the hell were you thinking? Grant laughed and grinned, and when the applause died down, he skipped excuses and went with the approach that had kept his ass out of the fire so far. I did a bad thing. I'm so, so sorry. He was penitent and chastised and charming, and audiences forgave him. It even seemed like Elizabeth Hurley forgave him, not that she was talking to the press. Paparazzi camped outside the couple's home. They shot photos of an extra mattress being delivered, something for Grant to sleep on while he was in the doghouse. From then on, as Hugh Grant established himself as a rom-com goldmine, the press was right there watching. And with the help of some low-tech hacking equipment, they were listening too. 
We'll be right back after this word, word, word. A Tupperware container of leftover baked beans soared through the air. It was a respectable throw, but the aerodynamics of the Tupperware were for shit. A can of beans would have nailed the guy for sure. From the doorway of his house, Hugh Grant shouted, Do you know who I am? He regretted it immediately. Who fucking says that? Out loud. The photographers knew who he was. That's why they were camped out in front of his house. That's why they were there every day and most nights. On a slow news day, staking out Hugh Grant's house was a solid bet for London paparazzi, especially lately. The previous month, March of 2007, Grant's ex, Elizabeth Hurley, tied the knot with somebody else. Grant and Hurley were together for 13 years, most of them after the Sunset Strip bust. The month before that, Grant broke off a long-term relationship with a London socialite. The paper seemed to know about the breakup before it happened. The Daily Mail ran a piece about Grant's late-night flirtatious phone calls with a Warner Brothers executive with a posh British accent and the stress it was putting on his relationship. Except there was no posh executive. There was a secretary at a film studio who left Grant messages to set up calls with execs. She happened to be British and a bit posh. She was also middle-aged and happily married. Grant wondered where the Daily Mail got that detail. One piece of truth in a steaming pile of conjecture. He sued the Daily Mail for libel and won. Hugh Grant racked up libel suits like BAFTA awards. It turned out the papers knew about the woman's accent because they were listening in on Hugh Grant's voicemail, a fact he wouldn't find out for years. Grant was an eligible bachelor in a rough spot emotionally. You never knew who might come by the house to comfort him, only to slink out in the morning. He was used to seeing photographers everywhere he looked. In the aftermath of his arrest in 1995, he and Elizabeth Hurley retreated to a farm in Sussex to work things out. Paparazzi boarded the property line, aimed telephoto lenses the size of rocket launchers at the windows. Tabloid readers voted Grant and his most recent ex a celebrity couple they'd most like to show them around London. The tabloids obliged by following the couple everywhere, pestering them with the chattering of cameras. In terms of his career, Hugh Grant had everything an actor could want. The apology tour following his arrest on the Sunset Strip won audiences over. Nine months was a box office hit despite its questionable quality. And when Grant made his next stab at a big Hollywood rom-com, everything fell into place. Notting Hill with Julia Roberts had all the charm of Grant's indie breakthroughs, plus the star wattage of one of America's favorite actresses. It killed. He started off his career scraping to pay the bills. In 1995, the year he got arrested, Grant released five movies. He could slow down, pick his projects based on quality and not just paycheck. They weren't all gold, but the good outweighed the so-so with hits like Bridget Jones's Diary and Love Actually proving to be the career temp poles. He'd just finished shooting Music and Lyrics, another rom-com, but this one had musical numbers inspired by Wham and written by Adam Schlesinger, the genius songwriter behind the indie pop band Fountains of Wayne. Shout out to Adam, who wrote the Oscar-nominated title song that my friend Mike Viola sang for That Thing You Do and who sadly passed away in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. Anyways, back to that movie, Music and Lyrics. Hugh Grant was cast as a washed-up 80s pop star opposite Drew Barrymore, who was 15 years his junior. He'd been looking forward to working with her. She didn't know him at the time, but Barrymore had taken the time to send him a letter of support in the wake of the Divine Brown scandal. She knew better than anyone how it felt to have your fuck-ups printed in the tabloids. But when they got together on set, the clash between the pair was obvious. 
Along with the age gap, there was an enthusiasm gap. Barrymore later described herself on set as like a Labrador in heat, excited with joy. Grant was less so, particularly when, after one scene, the younger actress had the nerve to give him notes on his performance. Grant snapped in the full curmudgeon mode. His performance got sharper and more abrasive, but the combination worked. Friendly relations on set didn't always translate to the screen, but a little bit of friction could produce sparks. Crackle was the word Grant liked to use for it. In interviews, when he recounted which of his leading ladies finished their shoot hating his guts. Most of them, as it turned out. Grant and Barrymore worked things out eventually, and they even had a drunken public makeout session at the Waverly in New York two years later. Surprisingly, no one was there to photograph it. But on this morning, in April of 2007, it seemed like the cameras would never go away. All Hugh Grant wanted was to be left alone, to hide behind the dark sunglasses and be blissfully anonymous for the time it took to take a walk or grab a cup of coffee. The only thing stopping him was one guy, just one guy, out there on the sidewalk with his fucking camera waiting to pester Hugh Grant the second he walked out the door. Grant came out swinging. Well, kicking. Hugh Grant ran across the street and started kicking the photographer in the shins. It was pretty clear why Grant was known for rom-coms and not for action roles, but he managed to land a swift one to the groin, and the photographer crumpled to the pavement. Grant stood over him, victorious, taunting. Do you have kids? Too, the guy moaned. I hope your kids die of fucking cancer. Just then, another photographer came around the corner. Grant was hyped up on adrenaline. Do you want some? Yeah, I do, the photographer replied. The very large photographer. The built like a brick shithouse photographer. Hugh Grant hoofed it back to the house, pissed off and scared shitless all at once. On his doorstep, he saw a Tupperware container full of baked beans. Some drunk must have left it there the night before. In that moment, it must have felt as though the universe left it there for Hugh Grant, so he could use it as a weapon in his war against the paparazzi. He picked up the baked beans and chucked them at the photographers. The lid came loose in midair. Lukewarm beans rained down on the photographers and spilled across the sidewalk. As the paparazzi tried to clean the beans off their camera lenses, Hugh Grant saw his opportunity to get the last word in. You know who I am? Shit. Botched it. No crackle. Grant shot back inside the house and slammed the door behind him. The next knock was the police. I had some questions about an assault with a less than deadly weapon. December, 2010. Hugh Grant's car was making a noise that cars this expensive weren't supposed to make. It sputtered and died on the side of a road in rural Kent. He looked ahead of him. He checked the rear view, nothing for miles. Grant got out of the car and the December wind bit at him. He looked down the road again, both ways, as if something might have appeared in the last few seconds. Still, nothing. He was about ready to say fuck it and hoof it back the way he came when he spotted a white van on the horizon, clipping down the road toward him. He stood on the shoulder, waving. The van slowed down as it passed, and then pulled over a couple yards ahead. The driver got out, holding a dark object. Grant prepared for the worst. He thought it might be a gun. Worse, it was a camera, with its long lens aimed right at him. These fucking people couldn't fucking help themselves, could they? Why is Hugh Grant parked on the side of the road this time? Let's find out and let's document it with a fucking camera. The driver came at him, clicking picture after picture. 
Grant told the guy in no uncertain terms to fuck off, and the driver stopped shooting long enough to offer Grant a ride the rest of the way into town. Hugh Grant offered the driver the opportunity to go fuck himself. Then he realized how deep in the middle of nowhere they were, and how unlikely it would be for anyone else to pass by. So Grant got in the van. The driver's name was Paul McMullen. Grant didn't recognize his face, but he recognized the name. McMullen used to write for News of the World, the biggest tabloid in England, the same one that got that exclusive story with Divine Brown all those years ago. McMullen wasn't just a writer, but a paparazzi too, which is why he had such a nice camera in the glove box of his van. These days, he ran a pub in Dover. The reason Grant recognized McMullen's name was that Paul McMullen was one of a group of the News of the World employees who blew the whistle on the tabloid's habit of hacking into people's phones. Politicians, celebrities, royals, anyone whose phone might have information of interest to the paper. Anyone, including a girl named Millie Doler. Millie Doler was 13 when she went missing on her way home from school in Surrey in March of 2002. The disappearance dominated British news. The missing girls sold papers, trying to scoop their competitors. News of the World hacked into Millie's voicemail and listened to her messages. But her mailbox was about to fill up, which meant no room for new messages to listen in on. They deleted old messages to clear out space. Messages that could have been evidence of Millie's disappearance. Worse than that, when Millie's parents saw that old messages were being deleted from her phone, they took it as proof that their daughter was still alive. Millie Dollar's body was found that fall, 50 miles from where she disappeared. Maybe that was the last straw, knowing the news of the world tampered with evidence in a murder investigation. Knowing that they might have destroyed evidence that could have led to Millie Dollar being found alive. Knowing they gave those poor parents false hope. McMullen went to another British newspaper, The Guardian, and laid out the whole thing. How top-level people at the paper encouraged reporters to use illegal tactics to get the scoop. On orders from the Prime Minister's office, the London Metropolitan Police launched an investigation, although they seemed to be moving at a glacial pace. And now, Paul McMullen was giving Hugh Grant a lift. When they got into town, McMullen asked Grant if they could take a quick selfie. For the wall of his pub, he said. Grant couldn't exactly say no. McMullen had saved him from a long, frigid walk. He smiled weakly as McMullen took the photo. If you're ever in Dover, McMullen said, stop by the Castle Inn. The picture was in the Daily Mail the following Sunday. These people couldn't help themselves. Five months later, Hugh Grant did happen to be in Dover, and he thought he'd pay McMullen a visit. Grant had been thinking about that time the tabloids knew he was getting phone messages from a woman with an upper-class accent. He had questions about phone hacking that McMullen might be able to answer. He could stop by the Castle Inn, order a pint, and ask. Or he could take a page from the tabloid playbook and go in wearing a wire. So that's what he did. At ease and unaware he was being recorded, Paul McMullen revealed it wasn't just news of the world that actively hacked phones. The Daily Mail, a more respectable publication that reported on real news, was also in the habit of buying scoops acquired through illegal means. Turning on the boyish charm that made him a star, Grant asked if the editors at the papers knew. McMullen chuckled. Good question, he said. You're not taping, are you? Grant squeaked out a high-pitched no. McMullen kept going. He said, not only did the editors know, the prime minister knew. Every prime minister knew. All the way back to Thatcher, he said. They got dirt from the papers and knew exactly how it had been acquired. They had to play nice, otherwise the dirt the papers had on them would be in the morning news. 
And it wasn't just the government, McMullen said. The cops were in on it too. One-fifth of the London Metropolitan Police Force, currently tasked with investigating the phone hacking scandal, had taken bribes from tabloid reporters. No wonder the investigation was moving so slowly. It was all in the game, Vaughn said. It was the price people like Hugh Grant paid for being a celebrity. What about Millie Dollar? Was she a celebrity? What price did she pay? Grant wanted to know. McMullen stared into his beer. By that point, the hidden recorder in Grant's pocket felt like it was overheating, like it would catch fire to his clothes and blow this whole top secret operation sky high. Was that even possible? Didn't matter. He wanted out of the castle in. Out of this fucked up version of all the president's men he'd apparently cast himself in. But he had one more question. Did you ever listen to my phones? My voicemails? McMullen shook his head. But I wrote about you plenty of times, and they pay me 3,000 pounds for that shot of us when your car broke down so the pints are on me. Hugh Grant thanked McMullen and rushed out of the pub. Then he sold the recording to the New Statesman, a UK magazine which ran a transcript as fast as they could get it to press. Within three months, News of the World, England's source for celebrity scandal since 1843, went out of business, collapsed under the weight of allegations. Allegations that were brought to light by none other than an actor who had been at the center of one of those front page celebrity scandals just years earlier. A turnaround so dramatic that it ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcasts because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis.